History Lecture 17, Rabbi Blyweiss, we are um, doing an overview of the lives of Shaul and David. And we're winding down the life of Shaul. If you remember, we talked about the downfall of Shaul. He was a really fantastic individual who, like most of us, has, has, has faults, has problems. And when he failed to follow the mitzvah of the Kaddish Baruch Hu, he did not kill the king of... Hello? You can finish my sentence to make me feel like you're out there. Who did he not kill? The king of the Amalekites, in Hebrew, Amalek. Right? He didn't kill the king of Amalek. So he, the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the special spirit of Kodesh Baruch Hu, departed Shaul, and simultaneously, where did it go? To David. To David, this fine, gingy lad. I'm speaking British now. This fine, uh, gingy soul, this red-headed, this red-headed young man, who... Um, What's that? Soul. No, no, no. And um, and and Shaul now is um, is angry. And if you remember, the plot thickens. Shaul now understands that David is high of Misa. He is subject to the capital punishment and for being rebellious, for being morid b'malchus, for rebelling against the king. Is Oh, so the king has special powers, and we find this with the first kings especially, Shaul and David and Shlomo, um, who they, they have the authority to be able to determine this, and the question is, is do they have to go through due process, go before the Sanhedrin or not? We're going to see this exact question come up in the case of David in a very significant way. They probably should, they, it, does, it should go through due process. But there's, there are exceptions made for this. Shaul understands though, that David is, um, is insubordinate, he's more of a malthus, and therefore that's, that his, 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 his lunging, he did try. And we've seen already last time, the, we ended talking about several attempts that Shaul makes on David's life. So far, unsuccessful. Aaron? A king can't make somebody high of Misa. Then they're not a king at all. No. I wouldn't say that's the main. There was such an episode, but that wouldn't play centrally in Shaul's life. And I need to see where you're referring to. Aaron Reich, I think I need. Yeah, find it for me. Do you know it offhand? You heard it here. There is something to that. There is something to that. And clearly, see, when we're dealing with these higher people, there it's very easy for us, and we made this observation as you before, it's very easy for us to judge them and to think that they're prone to these kind of human you still owe me an email. Send me an email. They're yeah, do it right now. They're, they're prone to very human kinds of things. Like it seems like Shaul is simply jealous of David, and the jealousy becomes a rage, so he wants to kill him. No, no, no. His, his motivation is L'shem Shemayim. He does want to kill David, but, um, but his motivation is L'shem Shemayim. Now, enter, there are, with, with, in the case of David and Melech, history is a little bit different. In the way we're going to be describing things, some personalities are so central and so meta-significant that we spend a lot of time on them. I mean, think about it. David and Melch's life takes up the better part of the two books, it's really a one book, of Shmuel, which is a, a serious component of the Tanakh. So David is a significant player, and there are a lot of 
how do we supporting players? A lot of other individuals come to the orbit of David. I'm not going to even talk about all of them, but there's certain personalities. So if today I warn you, I am going to throw out a bunch of names. I hope most of them are familiar to you. But if you don't know these names, you really should. To be a to be a student of Jewish history, to understand our legacy, you should know. For example, the next figure, his name is Doeg Haadomi. Doeg Haadomi who's described in several places in Chazal, I'm referring now to the uh, Gemara and Sanhedrin, uh, he has a short, impactful life. He lives all of 34 years. Is that the guy that came out of Who is he? Is that the guy that came out of Doeg can run fast. Not that I recall seeing anything like that. Naftali Ayala Shlucha, he's a fast. Yeah, he was able to run like, so fast to either over the grass. No, 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 I don't know why you're thinking of Doeg per se, but that's not Doeg. He, in his short life, was one of the greatest Talmud Chachamim of all time, to the point that anybody who argued with him, he could, he could argue, he could take him on and make the other guy blush out of humiliation for, you know, as, as it were, they would turn around and go, arf, 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 like, you know, a humiliated dog. That's how sharp and, and, and brilliant he was. Um, what you're referring to is a very famous Mishnah in the, in the, uh, um, in Perak Chelek in Sanhedrin that describes the three kings and the four commoners who Ein Lehem Chelek Lolam Haba and you're right, he is one of the four commoners meaning non-king but significant personalities who says they say Ein Chelek Lolam Haba and that's correct, that's correct so, but we have to be precise, when Chazala criticizes doesn't mean he's bad, doesn't mean he's without virtue everybody in that Mishnah all seven of those personalities are actually really immense incredible people with, uh, with huge redeeming qualities. It's just because of their redeeming qualities, they should have known better, and that's why... It sounds like it. Again, Sarich Iyunim, we're going to be considering all seven of these personalities play pivotal roles in history, so we're going to meet them all. We met, well, the truth is we met one of them. We met Bilam already, very briefly. Thank you. Thank you. So what does that mean? It's a great question you're asking, too. What are the implications of that? Does that mean Chas V'Shalom HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes a mistake? That can't be. HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't make any mistakes. He brought this Neshama into the world. If, the person, if they don't have any afterlife, there must be some notion of an afterlife. So what are the implications are also a little bit cloudy to us. <laughs> For sure. They can, have, they can have a long term in Gehenna. They can have it. They have bitter. But, but what does it mean? They vanish off the earth. That's. I would. I would. I'm going to leave that in. What we say. Tzadi ayin gemel. Sarich iyun gadol. That. That's. That's a topic in itself. What happens to these lost souls? Clearly, though, he's somebody who is a tremendous consequence. He knows Torah. Um, he was. What do we know about him? We know that he was present when Shaul fought the Amalekim. And he also, with Shaul, was in favor of saving the king Adag's life. That was one of his, one of his uh, demerits. The Gemara Chagiga tells us that um, his major sin, he was great in Tyra, but he had a real problem with envy. He saw other people had certain things and he wanted them. Specifically, he was envious of David. Um, what happened? He... And the Gemara says this, this is in Hedron, it's in Baba, Baba Basra says like this too, um, they had an argument over what was right down the street here. 
where is the location of the base of Mikdash, which you realize, I mean, we're, li- we're talking now, we're reliving vicariously pretty exciting times. Dabna Melech is not far away, and today we're going to talk about this, he's about to conquer the holy city of Yushalayim and can designate where the Makom Mikdash is. And Doeg HaDomi simply, based on his learning, had an argument. He said, it's not there, it's elsewhere. What do you say? Say it again. He stole. It's still a no, right? The Mishkan is in Nov. Right now, and this is Nov is going to play a role now in the story. You remember correctly. The Mishkan is located in Nov, which is somewhere north of Yushalayim, uh, and and they have an argument about where the base of Mikdash should be um, should be built. Now, Doeg is also clever, and he's an operator. And he has a whole conspiracy to undermine David. It's really with the goal of overthrowing David. He thinks that he could be better than David. When David flees, as he's fled already, he's running around the country escaping from Shaul. Shaul uh, Doeg tells Shaul, the king, Do- Doeg tells him that David's marriage to the king's daughter was never valid. The king's daughter? Who's the king's daughter? Michal. That, valid, that, that marriage was never good. Shaul defers to the great Talmud Chacham and he says, okay, I will give my daughter's hand in marriage to a different man named Paltiel. And, um, and she marries Paltiel. Now, if you heard my t- tone of voice just now, I put that almost in, I put this in quotation marks. She marries Paltiel, but Paltiel was a big Yerushalayim and he didn't believe it for a second. He knew that he was assigned another man's wife. And he cried, right? And he cried, and the Gemara and tells us, famously, he slept with a sword in his bed that separated between him and Michal, and he never touched her. There's another man's wife, I have nothing to do with her. And he held himself back, he controlled his Yitzhahara, and for all the, and it's a whole period of time that Michal is separated from her husband, uh, and, Palt- and, and given the Paltiel, but he never, he never really uh, is, consummates the, effect, the, 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 the marriage. Um, and then, Doeg does his most famous act, and he's cited in Pirkei Avos and elsewhere, this is great act of villainy. He tells Shaul, I know where David fled. I remember, Shaul is chasing him for his life. I know where David is, He's hiding in Nov itself, the Nov where the Mishkan is located. And the Kohanim there in Nov, 85 of them, actually 86 of them, are covering up for David. That's what he tells him. What he doesn't tell him, and, and by the way, that's all true. And the Mishnah Bibiabos tells us that's he's the, he is the poster boy for which of Aaron the Torah? You know, it starts, starts with the Reish. Starts with the Reish, a Reish, ends with an Echilus. Starts with the Reish, ends with Echilus. Hey, you're good. Rechilus. Okay. Rechilus being not quite Lashon Hara, even though it overlaps a little bit. Not quite Lashon Hara, just a talebearer, just giving information. He's All he's doing is telling Shaul a technical piece of information. Oh, look, David's over in Nov, hiding out with the Kohanim. Of course, what do you expect that's going to do for Shaul? Shaul is going to fly, fly into a fit of rage and there are terrible consequences. What he neglects to tell them is that when David went to Nov, he didn't really, he didn't want to endanger the Kohanim, he didn't want to get them into trouble, so he told the Kohanim that I'm here on a mission from Shaul. He lied to them to save them. 
He said, I'm on a mission from Shaul, and that's why the Kwanim did nothing insubordinate to the king. So meanwhile, David Zinnov, the Kwanim, they think that they're doing nothing wrong. Uh, Doeg gives this, this choice piece of information to the king, um, and the king orders Doeg have every one of those Kohanim killed for also being more Malchus. They're going against me, and therefore they're all gonna, they're all gonna die, and Doeg has them all, 85 of them out of 86 killed, together with many others. One Kohen gets away. He plays a role later on. His name is Evyasar. He's a young man, Evyasar ben Achimelech. I throw this out to you because this is going to come back at a later point in history. Maisa Abu Siman Labonim, whatever happens now, is, is, is reflected later on. Do you, know, do you know the connection? What is the connection? I mean, he's the last of the guys. So I know. He's the bearer of the... I'll throw this out to you. In, in, after the break, probably one of the first... Well, no, not the first class. It's going to be a lot. Probably a few weeks after the break, we're going to see another episode involved with David's descendants, the house of David, down in, in, in Malchus Yehuda, in which there's somebody who's going to rise up and conspire to murder all the descendants of David, and one gets away. Do you know what it is? Do you know who the person is who, who, who tries to murder him? Okay, I'm not telling you. You can look it up or just stay tuned. No, the person who died, which is of course the uh, the Canaanites, the ones who uh, who made a illegal treaty. That's not the same connection. No, 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 no but I mean, don't confuse no, the issue. Is that no, real? No, but no, but that's what I'm saying. In no, when, you're saying when the Givonim? Yeah, when they uh, when the Kohanim died, so did most, so did some of them. Many uh, of the Givonim also died. Yeah, and that, Fair that enough. comes later on. Though. That also that also will come up, come to play a role later on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Elijah. Wasn't it true though that I mean, the reason how people died is because Ellie's sons are going to die? Ellie's sons are going to die. What's that connected here? Ellie's Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Craig. We talked about that here. The sons are going to, his descendants will all die young, yeah. Uh, these Kohanim are among the seed of Eli, a Kohen? Not necessarily. No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not by, it's not by lineage. At all, and I mentioned this, Eli, unusual, uncharacteristically, was descended from Isamar. The younger son of Aaron and most of the Kohen and Gedolim in early history, these came from Elisar. So no, no, it's not a direct line. It's, not, it's, it's an interesting question. Anyway, anyway, um, the Kohanim, almost all of them are murdered. Ebusar gets away, tells David, David has escaped too, tells David what's happened. Um, David is, the Gemara faults him, False him because he should have been more careful realizing the crazed nature of Shaul's quest and he shouldn't have endangered the, uh, the city of Nob as he did and that's why his descendants will, will suffer on a certain level for something that he did. Now, they're, they're, Shaul is relentless. He pursues David around the country. I'm just giving you certain key highlights. Um, the next scene that I'm going to highlight, there are a few more that happen in the interim, but the next one is very, very famous. He chases, Shaul chases David to the, um, to the Judean desert in a place called Ein Gedi. And David is hiding out in a cave, and Shaul is looking for him, and he knows he's somewhere there. He doesn't know where he is, though, precisely. And at one point, Shaul, the king, needs to relieve himself. And as kings did, they did not do that in any, uh, exposed to anybody. He went into what he thought was an isolated cave, 
But meanwhile, David and his men are hiding in the back of that cave. And they see the king enter the cave. <laughs> David's men tells them, this is fulfilling Hashem's promise. Hashem promised he's going to deliver Shaul into your hands. Kill him, David. Get him now. He's walking right into our hands. It's supernatural what's going on. Take the opportunity. And David says, no. This is Mashiach Hashem. He's the anointed from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I don't touch him. Instead, as Shaul is relieving himself, he famously goes over. He walks to his garment. And he, he without Shaul noticing, he covers, he cuts the corner of the garment and goes back to the back of the cave. And as Shaul, you know the scene? When there's certain scenes in history, you just have to know. They're just so important. Shaul is about to exit the cave, and David calls out for him. And, he's, and he, he asks the king, he says, why do you chase me? Why do you think I'm going to kill you? And Shaul responds, he says, because you're more of a Malthus. You're rebelling against me. You're trying to kill me. You're trying to have my throne. And David holds up the scrap, the garment, and he says, is that correct? Well, then look, how do I have this, king? And, and Shaul indeed looks down at his garment. He notices, he sees exactly what David's done, and it's a proof. He sees that David is blameless. He's done nothing wrong and uh, could have killed him and didn't kill him. And so he was mistaken about David. And there's a, it's one of the great moments of what we call hirhu tshuva, where a person has tremendous, genuine uh, repentance. He, Shaul feels terrible and he apologizes to David. He asks for mechila. And it's a very poignant scene. Ilan and then Jay, go ahead. Oh, okay, 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 well, you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. We'll get to that. But let's, let's, let's just appreciate this scene before we move on to the next point. But it's a great insight you got. Yeah. Shaul technically had to David. Yeah. Shaul is technically king, according to Hashem. Because Shaul is trying to kill David. So you're saying it's like backwards here. Really, David should be the king because there's been some. Shaul should die because he's going against the king. On some level, but David has, has, has had some minimal early kind of coronation without really officially being coronated. So why, do you show, why, do you <laughs> why doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, because he, he... And it was set a bad precedent, too. That, that was one of the comments. He's that's interesting. That's one parish. If he kills Saul, somebody may kill him, somebody may kill the king. Uh, and we, as we say, in the Dabra Sof, there's no end to it at that point. Then everybody will try to kill the king in order to do this. Technically speaking, the Melech B. Israel, Shaul is technically still the Melech B. Israel, is an exalted holy position. And anybody who, who, who threatens, I mean, Elan, I'm going I'm to make your point now because it's really relevant. Anybody who threatens to go against the king on some level is going against the Kaddish Baruch himself. That's why, and think about this, David is, how L'shem Shemayim, how beautiful is David, is, is David and his actions, and he's trying so carefully to honor the king, and yet, because David cuts the hem, the corner of the robe of Shaul, he's punished for that later on. Because even cutting the garment is seen as a denigration of the covenant of the king. Because that's how, from far from what he, the level that he expects from his Siddiqui, he yeah, shouldn't have even done that. I know. And so that for you and me, it would have been a virtuous thing to have done. But for David, a Kaddish Baruch Hu expects more, and that's why later on in David's life we're going to find this, that, um, that in, the, in the end, clothes will no longer serve the king, and in his old age, he literally can never find comfort. He's freezing, and clothes do not give him comfort, and there's something else that they, that they, they right, something else at the very beginning of the, of the book of, of Malachim that we'll talk about. But we're ahead of ourselves right now.
Uh, later on, anyway, the ruach ra'ah, the bad spirit, goes back to Shaul. He then goes, he resumes his warpath and starts chasing David again. And it's around this time that the great Navi Shmuel, all of 52 years of age, dies. All during this 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 very uh, impactful, tumultuous time. Where, meanwhile, is the, uh, the so the Mishkan was in Nov. The Mishkan, having been in Nov for 13 years, now moves to Givon for 44 years. And Givon, I think Givon is what you were thinking of before. Givon is where the Nisinim are. That's where that's one of the four cities of the of the of the Nisinim, who are called the uh, the, the the water drawers and the woodcutters. Right. Okay. Um, so, so the Aaron, meanwhile, where is the Aaron in the meantime? When we find our, our when, when we last left our heroes, remember where the Aaron is? You'll have to come, you'll have to come stay with me for Shabbos one of these times, because it's, it's, it's in Kiryat Yarim, which is identified as my home, Telstone. Uh, so that's, that's where the Aaron Kodesh is. Telstone is a totally modern name. It's a confluence of two names, Tel Sheshiva, which was in which the, the shell of the structure is up, but and Tel Sheshiva was supposed to come out, but that's a whole story never quite happened, not yet at least. Uh, move, make Aliyah from Cleveland to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, so it was Tel's and one of the um, great philanthropists of the 20th century oh, who didn't quite, uh, who, who underwrote a lot of great projects, uh, gave some of the early seed money for Telstone. His name was Irving Stone. Oh, right. That's yeah. the Telstone, Stone Chumash. Yeah. Right, right, right. That's a Telstone. Um, I get in, I get in arguments with the tour guides because other tour guides say that's not the right stone. They say it's uh, David Stone, Mickey Marcus, Mickey Stone. There's a there's a whole, uh, the first general of the Israeli fight or the Jewish fighting. It wasn't an army yet because it, it before before there was a state. Um, it was an American guy who you know, that, you know Mickey Marcus, cast a giant shadow. Anyway, he was killed. Um, and there's a there's a big monument up at the top of Telstone where he died in friendly fire, terrible tragedy, uh, right before Israel declared independence in 1948. David is running from, Sh- from, from Shaul still, and the next famous episode, the next famous episode, I'm only gonna, I'm only, I'm not giving you the whole story, I'm giving you the highlights. Um, he comes down to the area in the Hebron Hills of a place called Carmel. It's a little community called Carmel today. Not so clear that it's in the exact right area, but generally that, that general region <laughs> south of Hebron. And there's a big wealthy man by the name of Naval who, is, who, who lives there. And David sends, David's with 400 soldiers, and he sends word to Naval, please can you offer hospitality? I'm fleeing for my life. We need to be taken in. Can you please feed us and take care of us? And Naval, uh, Naval refuses. Naval is a term also, a disgusting individual that either comes from this individual himself, who is a disgusting person, uh, or, or you just aptly name. Um, you ever hear the expression, Naval Bishusatayra? This is Judaism 101, Naval Bishusatayra means he's somebody who's technically from, but he's, he's an animal. You know people like this, you've heard of people like this. Right? They, work, they walk the part, and dress the part, they do everything technically from, but they're evil, rotten, lousy people. The guy who, let's say, uh, you know, looks the part but beats up his wife. That's a novel, Bershusa Tyra. Uh, so this is such an individual, and he refuses to help David, even though he recognizes, you know, everybody knows that David's a tzaddik. So David's out there, and there's a very famous scene. Um, Nabal has a wife, a very beautiful, great wife. Her name, his name is, her name is Abigail. And she's a prophetess. Right, she's one of the seven women, female Neviot, prophetesses, right. We mentioned her. 
So she rides out to David and she says, uh, please forgive, uh, please forgive my, my, uh, my husband. Uh, and she says, she, she says that every, she actually gives David a very famous bracha. There's a little tidbit in history. She says, she says, let your soul be bound to the eternal soul. What's the exact lush of the puzzle? I don't have it, but it's the same abbreviations that you see on, and who's been to a Jewish cemetery, you see on the kever, the abbreviation, Sadi based, the five, the five letters, it's based on the puzzle that Abigail blesses David. And she says, your soul should be bound to eternity. Uh, that's, that's her blessing. Um, she says, my husband is like his name implies. She comes home um, and she finds her husband's drunk and she waits till the next morning and she says, David's coming. And um, he's terrified. And he turns, his heart turns to stone and he's frozen in place. 10 years later, miraculously, Hashem smites him and Naval dies. And David moves into the camp, and in the end, he gets hospitality in, Car- in Naval's home without Naval being there, and ultimately he marries Abigail. Ten years later. I said ten years, I meant ten days. Thanks for the correction. It's ten days later. <coughs> the drama goes on. I'm abbreviating. I'm trying to give you a quick overview, a rampage through history. Over a year elapses. David, meanwhile, becomes an even greater warrior. He takes on other nations and smites them all. Shaul is, nearing the, is at the, near the end of his rope. He realizes he's never gonna catch David. Not only that, he's lost even more divine guidance and he seeks Hashem, he seeks some kind of help um, in a dream. He tries to contact Hashem through the Urim and Tumim. What are the Urim and Tumim? In the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, that's one way the king gets direct access and a message from Kaddish Baruch Hu, but there's no get, there's nothing doing. Kaddish Baruch Hu has, as it were, severed his tie with Shaul. He'll eventually, he gives up on pursuing them, and he realizes that's not going anywhere, and now he, all he wants now is some connection with Hashem, and he can't even find that anymore. And so finally, in a very, very famous scene, he gives in, and there is a woman in a place called Endor. She's a medium, and she knows how to summon the dead. And he goes down to this medium, and he asks her, and he's at his rope set, he doesn't know what to do. And he says, I need guidance from Shmuel. Shmuel's dead, but only Shmuel can get me out of this rut. Please call Shmuel from the dead. Um, is there a problem here, folks? What's it called? Let me know the name of the Yisud Yerisa that seems to be that Shal is doing. It's called the Maise Ovos. The Ovos were necromancers. They, necromancers, they consulted the dead. Not what we're supposed to do. What's interesting about the mitzvah, it indicates that it, it's a possibility. It's not that anybody have, what is it called, the, the special board that you got there? The Ouija board. You contact the dead, you communicate with the, with the souls. Apparently, there's such a notion Today probably don't believe them, they're charlatans if they can do it, but there is such an idea that people can conjure the dead and talk to them. It's an Eastern Dereisa, we're not supposed to. We have the Urban Tumim, we have prophecy, we have the Torah itself, we don't need we don't need to consult the dead. So it's a big question, what is Shaul doing? He was desperate. The the uh, the one of one of the Mafarshim say he's simply desperate. Shmuel comes to him and he tells him, Why did you bring me from the dead? And Shaul says, well, I'm desperate. And he said, and Shaul only tells him one prediction. He says, 
Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Hit the low, low chords on the piano, please. Yeah, yeah. So tomorrow you will be with me. Um, what's interesting, too, the Mepharshim point out, the episode shows us that Shaul was a, was a tzaddik. Because only a tzaddik would have actually merited having Shmuel come and speak to him as he does in the, in, um, you know, it, it, through, the, through, this, uh, through this medium. That doesn't make sense, because if he was a flawed tzaddik, he wouldn't have, like... Right, he was a flawed tzaddik who sins, but a tzaddik nonetheless. That's the, that's, that's the shot that they, that they offer. The woman herself sees how bereft the king is. She feeds him with compassion. Um, Rambam explains, and this is very consistent if you know... If you know the Rambam on, on our... On, the Rambam explains, he says, the whole thing was Shaul's dream. It never actually happened. And so Shaul, Rambam says, Shaul violated no Easter. There was no Avera here. Um, the next day, the Jewish people, led by their king and his sons, go up against the, uh, the eternal protagonist, at least at this point, who's been our major enemy for this period, the police team, the Philistines. They go into, into <laughs> Mount Gilboa, Har Gilboa, which sits above the uh, Jezreel and Bashan valleys. And it's there where three of Shaul's sons are, 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 are slain, including our, our, our hero, Yonasan, uh, the good friend of David. And the archers strike Shaul, but don't succeed in murdering him. He's lying very, very seriously injured, and he turns to his arms bearer, and he says, please finish the job, and the arms bearer refuses. I'm not going to kill the king. And so Shaul, very famously, does what? He falls on his sword. He falls on his sword. It, this is the... Even though we've seen, if you remember, we saw Abimelech, the Shofet, kill himself. And we're going to see another, another example of suicide. This is the first... Really, Abimelech didn't kill himself. He had, he had his swords bare do it. Assisted suicide. Here, Shaul commits suicide. And suicide is a is an isidiraisa, and the question is discussed. What was what was Shaul doing, and did he do a major avera? Could you say that he was insane? Some do. Some say he was insane, but that's not the usual shot. I'm going to suggest now um, some of the ways the Mefarshim deal with this famous question: What was Shaul? How do we understand his last act? The Ramban tells us that for a gadol, for a great Jew like Shaul, it's technically mutter. He was, after all, what's called anus. Anus Rahman Patre, a person under duress, Hashem forgives. And under those circumstances, his suicide was going to be murder soon. It was, he was going to die soon anyway, and it was therefore understood in its own special category. Don't try this at home, kids, literally and figuratively. And, and it was just true for Shaul. Come, scoot, scoot in, scoot in, scoot in. He got plenty of room. Sit, 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 come, it's plenty of room. So, so that's the Ramban. The Beit Yosef, who wrote the Beit Yosef? Rav Yosef Karo, the Beit Yosef, discusses Shaul in the, in the, in the Shulchan Aruch. He says, the, he says otherwise. He said what Shaul did was a grave prohibition. A person's not allowed to commit suicide. And what Shaul did was against the Ratzon of the Chachamim. Um, a couple other explanations. The Marshal suggests like this. It's very interesting. Good. Marshal says like this. Shal was thinking like this. If he would have survived, the enemy would have captured him. 
the Jews, understanding that their king is held captive, would have risked everything to get to redeem their king. Thousands and thousands of lives would be lost. In the end, Shaul would have died anyway. And to save other lives, Shaul reasoned that suicide was better. Are you allowed to, um, to commit suicide to save another Jew? No. And that's what makes this suggestion a little bit tricky. The Marshal says, or Shlomo Luri in the 16th century says, this was unique to Shaul's situation. We can't necessarily make these kinds of considerations, but Shaul could. Another related suggestion, he suggested Kavod Malchus. He's, after all, he's the king. He's, the, he's Mashiach Hashem. He's the anointed of Hashem. Um, to prevent the chil Hashem that might have befallen him, um, he was allowed to commit suicide. That's the limut schus. What you see in the pattern here, when you see these great Rishani Mahronim consider Shaul, what they understood is he really was a great man. He really was exciting, so it's impossible to say that he was not motivated on some level of Shemai, whether it was right or wrong, but he didn't try. What everybody agrees with is that um, this is not a precedent. Suicide is still forbidden, uh, and, and Shaul was the exception to the rule. Uh, yeah? Are you, um, for example, like, is, there, is there a certain point where you're allowed to, like, for example, there was a story a while ago with the soldier that jumped on yeah. So it's, if you're interested in the subject, I have a file called Suicide. You can get my shear online, menashaflywise.com, and I, I go into much greater depth there than I do right now, because it's just brief, brief, and we can't really talk about Shaw without at least briefly talking about suicide. There are, you, you, can start, you can start much earlier. The Gemara indicates, the Gemara indicates in a few famous stories, including some we're going we're gonna to hear about, um, the 400 boys and girls who throw themselves overboard as they're being carried off uh, by boat to captivity in Rome at the, after the second temple's destroyed. Familiar story? And they throw, they throw themselves overboard, and it seems the way that the Farshim relate to that, that was a positive act. They died al Kiddush Hashem. We have to understand why, how they relate to different kind of acts. There, where it was inevitable that they were going to be used for prostitution, <coughs> kind of arayos, and arayos is a case we say yehari or a person should violate, should, should die and not violate the sin. So there, they were justified, and Rabbeinu Tam has a whole position on that that what they did was absolutely fine and correct. And other cases, maybe not. Um, some of the uh, contemporary um, post game consider Masada, famous modern, famous story that Chazal don't relate to, but Josephus tells the story. If Josephus' story is right, did the Jews up a Masada, and it may not be right, by the way. We don't know that Josephus' story is correct, but you know, the fam famous story that it's really not suicide, it's really mass murder, only the last one was suicide. They all killed each other, if Josephus is right. Whether that was justified, and that's harder to justify. Um, in the end, in the end, the the basic uh, discussion, the post scheme is it comes down to um, suicide being forbidden. It's um, can't really say it's a capital offense because you know you're not high of misa for it if you think about it. Um, but uh, and there's a debate where it comes from. Go listen to the shir for more for more details. Which yes. But the same thing you're saying about the soldier jumping the grenade. Yes. It's you were going to die anyway, they might as well save people while dying. I'm saying if he didn't jump on the, on the grenade, he would die. Yeah. And if he did, he would die. All of, which, all of which factor into whether that's a good thing or not a good thing to do. Sometimes suicide clearly is legitimate, is the answer, and sometimes not. And sometimes you don't have the, you don't have the time or the luxury to ask a Shiloh. So it's a good thing to know this again. Um, at, when Shaul dies, I want to go on. When, yeah. Um, I heard that like in 
some of the people who just jump out of the building yeah. mm -hmm. that may not be suicide if death was clearly inevitable <laughs> that may have been more justified <laughs> although it, it, we have to ask what was so the purpose the rabbis, the rabbis it was could be it could be. It could be. We see we see chiluke deos. We see different deos, and a lot of it comes down to what are the circumstances and what what is the game? What would you gain by doing that? I want to I want I want to move on though. Let me move on. Let me move on. I know this is interesting, but it's not really our topic. What if the death you have a choice of suicide? Yeah. Yeah. What they call in modern terms euthanasia. I'm not referring to kids in Hong Kong. Like, the, uh, like like, right, right, right. People who die, mercy killing, mercy killing is another discussion. Also complicated, also file, also online. I have, I have a whole piece on the subject. And you could say that there might be some precedent for it. We'll reconsider the, the question when we talk about Rebbe Yehuda Nasi's death, which might be considered a kind of euthanasia. Pay attention, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a few months from now, but we'll get there, Bezras Hashem. In any case, in any case, generally speaking, the approach to life is we don't care as much about quality of life as much as life itself. The pasuk we read in Parsha recently was Bachar Bachat, you should choose life. And so even a life that's difficult, yes, but could you do a mitzvah? A person sitting in a hospital bed the rest of his life, but could he say Kriyashma? And doesn't that justify his existence on some level? We generally, um, we're in the Western world, it's all about quality of life. And if you're not having a good old time, if you're suffering, chas v'shal, you might as well just die. The Jews don't see suffering necessarily as the all-embracing all, the, uh, all, uh, evil. When Shaul falls, David laments famously, Eich naflu giborim, how the mighty have fallen. David himself is aware, even though Shaul is committed to killing David his you know, this entire period, David sees his greatness and he, see, and he, and he, he recognizes um, the, the loss, the tragic loss of Shaul. Now, here's Shaul to me, one of the things you have to conclude from his example, he is, if you just learn the Tanakh, chas if you just open a Tanakh and go through the Psukim, so many tour guides, you know I, was, I ran a tour guide training course. And so one of my big things to teach my students when they go out there, do not just guide by just taking a Tanakh out into the land. You know, read from the Tanakh as if that's the end all, you know, you just quote the Pasuk and you know what's going on. You do not know what's going on based on the Pasuk. You must have Chazal to back you up. If you just, in the case of Shaul, learn the Psukim, he does not emerge that favorably. I mean, even just the bare contours of the, of the story is not so flattering to him. I mean, even Chazal, now listen to what Chazal say. And, and Chazal explain it, they back it up, and they're writing with Ruach HaKodesh. So they're not making it up. This is part of our tradition. Shaul is one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time. He's a tragic, flawed figure, but you know what? So is everybody. Everybody's flawed. Shaul, not exception. But look at, look at, look at, look at his virtues. He's one of the greatest Jews. He is pure tahor from his first year, and he maintains that level of personal tahara. Once upon a time, tumantara were a big deal. We'll talk about that too. You know what I'm talking about, tumantara? You had to maintain. You couldn't come in contact with the dead body, but not just dead bodies. There are all kinds of conduits of tuma, and 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 Shaul was pure. That's that's very unusual. He was exceedingly modest. I mean, even. Up until leading to his, his monarchy and continuing to the end of his life, he never let it go to his head, which is very hard to do. His anava was the reason why his, his humility was why he was chosen to be the king. He had a personal fortune. He gave it away to poor people. He was a really extraordinary individual. He personally looked out for hachnosus kala, making sure that, that um, poor girls had money to get married. 
Um, he fought on behalf of Klal Yisrael. He fought the Plish team in many different battles. And it was all a shame Shemaim. Again, what we said now, even his death may have been very much because of his love of the Jews. He didn't want them to die on his account. Um, even when he seemed doomed, he continued to fight them. Even when Shmuel had just told him, you're going to die the next day, he goes to battle. He doesn't flinch because he's got a job. He's got to defend Klal Yisrael. His major fault, his major fault, you wouldn't also get this from the Psukim so clearly, was his concern with public opinion. That's why, that's why he failed to, king, to kill the king of the Amalek, Gog, Ki Eresi Meaham. I, I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the nation. But he shouldn't have been afraid. He should have, had, should have realized that Gadesh Baruch who has a mitzvah, you just do the mitzvahs. Um, you know, finally, true leaders... And Shaul is not necessarily our vision of the greatest leader. That's coming with his with David Melech. True leaders are afraid to make, are unafraid about making decisions that are not popular. Um, one of the great statements of Rabbi Shaul Salanter, he says, Rabbi Shaul Salanter, the, the, the founder, the architect of the Muslim movement in the 19th century, he says, a rabbi, or a leader for that matter, with whom everybody agrees is not a rabbi. Uh, a rabbi with whom everybody disagrees, he said, Nitkin Mensch. He's not, a, he's not a Mensch. Sometimes you can't be against the people. If you're always going to disagree, you're not a Mensch. But, on some, but you have to be prepared to, to do things that they're not going to be popular with the people. Um, I mean, that's part of what it is. It's not a popularity contest. Being, giving over Torah, leading the Jews, sometimes you're going to say something that are, that, 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 that's incredibly unpopular, undesirable for people to hear, and simply true, and it needs to be said nonetheless. <clears throat> the next king of the Jewish people? You're good. Because he knows me already and knows that I have all these gotcha kinds of questions. Anybody know his name in Hebrew? The next king of the Jewish people? After Shaul? That's what you were thought you were going to say, but you didn't pay attention to Barak's correct answer. It's a, it's a surviving son of Shaul, and I'm, I'm not telling you his name. Come back this time, tomorrow, as we meet, as we meet the next king of the Jews, very briefly, uh, only two years, and he's not really over the entire Jewish people. And of course, we're going to focus tomorrow, Bezras Hashem Yisparach, on David HaMelech as he emerges. Technically, he's not over the Jewish people at all. That's absolutely correct. So uh, that, that's a fair statement. Shukriya, everybody.